Today's scripture passage is taken from Philippians uh, chapter 3, verses 7 to 14 and 18 to 21. So starting at verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And then moving to uh, verse 18. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone, uh, or afternoon, or whenever we catch you. <laughs> First, I want to begin by saying um, it has been awesome to have Sam has been back this week. If you don't know Sam, then chances are you've joined us in the last four months. Sam is one of their co-lead pastors, and he's been on a sabbatical. And so, you know, we thought to welcome him back, we'd have the whole rest of the pastoral team in the band and make Sam sit in a pew by himself. Just, you know, a little hazing ritual. No, just kidding. That was purely accidental. But it was fun because uh, last week, Clem prayed for Sam and prayed that Sam would be able to, to ease in back into his role. And I thought, no, no, don't pray for that. He's supposed to come back full force and do everything. But we decided we'd give him a light Sunday uh, so that he could yeah, ease back in. So he, Sam's giving a thumbs up, but there's a single tear dripping down his... No, I'm just kidding. There isn't. He's quite happy. Now, as most of us um, are aware, a federal election has been called here in Canada for this September, which means for the next month, many of us will be surrounded by thoughts and conversations around what's best for Canada and our national identity. And it just so happens that as we continue through our series on the letter of Philippians, this morning we are looking at chapter 3, which has themes of national identity. And so I thought, what a better way to start than by sharing a story about ravioli. Yes, I said ravioli. Just checking to see if I've already lost your attention after uh, like a minute. 
Uh, back when Monica and I were, actually I can't remember if it was when we were dating or first married, one of her good friends uh, was getting married. And uh, since Monica was one of the bridesmaids, we got to go to the rehearsal dinner and it was held at a really fancy restaurant downtown. And I remember that there were only a couple of options on the menu for us to choose from. Now, as an aside, have you ever noticed there's often an inverse relationship between how fancy a restaurant is and how many options there are on the menu? The fancier a restaurant, the less you have to choose from. Have you ever noticed that? What's with that? Anyway, uh, I wasn't too excited about the few options that were there, but the least unappealing to me was a butternut squash ravioli with squid ink. Now, I remember looking with some trepidation at this square pasta, half black with defensive discharge of an aquatic mollusk. But the moment that I bit into it, my apprehension disappeared in a flash of exquisite flavor. It was, it was heavenly, heavenly ravioli. And for a while after the night, every time we went out and I saw butternut squash uh, ravioli on a menu, I ordered it, longing and hoping for that experience, but I was always disappointed. All have fallen short of the glory of that one squid ink butternut squash ravioli. Now, I'm guessing most of you can think of a similar experience. Perhaps a food or a drink, or it could be a perfect sporting event that you watched or participated in, or the ultimate roller coaster or a live band, or whatever. An experience that blew all experiences out of the water. And ever since that time, every time you have that type of a food or that experience, you say, it's okay, but this one time I had... And everything else pales in comparison. National identity and ravioli. Well, not ravioli per se, but that which makes all other things pale in comparison. And that is what chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Philippians is all about. Now, over the past couple of weeks, uh, we saw how one of Paul's major concerns for his letter is relationships, how following the humble way of Jesus is intrinsically lived out in the community of faith, in the church, in relationship with others. And then here in chapter 3, Paul seems to take a bit of a pivot. And if you want to follow along, uh, Philippians uh, chapter 3. So he starts, uh, chapter 3 starts with this. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again as it is a safeguard for you. And then seemingly out of nowhere, so he's got this joy. uh, Rejoice in the Lord. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Just out of nowhere. It seems to be kind of out of nowhere that, that Paul gives this. Now, Paul doesn't tell us who in Philippians, he doesn't tell us who these dogs are that makes him switch so quickly from uh, a command to rejoice to a command to watch out for these for dogs, uh, evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. 
In Philippians, he doesn't tell us who this is. Uh, but we know who they are from other letters of Paul and the book of Acts. Now, most of the first people who followed Jesus were Jewish. And since Jesus had come, he was a Jew himself, and he had come to fulfill the promises of God to the Jews. Many Jewish Christians, so Jews who came to follow Jesus, felt that it was necessary to continue certain Jewish religious practices as a follower of Jesus, kind of like a continuation of their Jewish faith. Now, for the Jews, one central practice that identified a Jewish male as being a member of God's people, as being under God's covenant and promise, was circumcision. And for those of you who don't know what circumcision is, it is cutting off a male's foreskin. It's a symbol or a badge, you could say, of entering into this covenant of relationship between God and God's chosen people. It is an expression of being chosen by God and living in God's promises as his people. Well, in, the, in this time that Paul is writing to the Philippians, when the Christian church was still largely Jewish, although in Philippi, the, the, those who were reading this were mostly uh, Gentile, which means everyone except for Jews, uh, there was a group of Jewish Christians who were traveling around. They were going around trying to force other Christians, particularly those who were not born Jewish. And so Christians like the Christians in Philippi would have been a key target for this group. Um, was This group was saying that they need to get circumcised and they need to also continue other practicing Jewish religious customs if they want to follow Jesus. Now, we, we, I suspect that these people have not actually arrived in Philippi yet, and that Paul is more giving them a, a heads up. He's saying to watch out for it. Keep an eye out for these people. They are coming. And for Paul, this idea of requiring followers of Christ to be circumcised so that they could enter into community was, to Paul, a complete rejection of the freedom of Christ that was brought through his death, through Christ's death and resurrection, through Christ's dying and rising again. Forcing people to get circumcised to become a part of the Christian church was, for Paul, attempting to replace Christ with human religious works. So, to show what a perversion of the gospel this practice was in Paul's eyes, this group who call themselves the circumcision, Paul calls the mutilators. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. The word flesh isn't actually in the original language. It's just those mutilators or those the mutilators. So he's saying they call themselves the circumcision I'm calling them the mutilators. He calls them here in these three statements, he calls them by names that they as Jews would have used to insult those who are outsiders to the people of God. So Jews would say of Gentiles, so to everyone who is outside of the people of God, Jews would call them dogs and evildoers or unrighteous. And so, 
Paul uses these names that these, the, the circumcised Jewish Christians, he uses names they would, words they would use to insult non-Jews. Paul is using those same words to insult them as Jews who are trying to force Jewish law onto followers of Christ. So calling them dogs and evildoers, calling them the mutilation, Paul turns and says, instead of this, it is that by those who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. This is who is truly the circumcision. So Paul is taking back that title, uh, but without requiring actual physical circumcision. What Paul is saying is, those who are in the family of God, those who are in the family who are insiders through Christ, are the true circumcision, not the unrighteous dogs who put their confidence and their boasting in their flesh by mutilating themselves. Paul likes to be a little extreme at times. Then Paul goes on to say that if anyone has reason to put confidence in the flesh, it was him. Even more than these mutilators who put confidence in their flesh, Paul had even greater reason to be confident. And so Paul, in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he gives us his curriculum vitae, which is, you know, his, his CV. And for any one of you who has applied for a job in the last 10 years, you know what a CV is. It's kind of replaced a resume. Although it's different than resume, but that's not what I want to talk about. So reading in verse 4, I guess verse 4b. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law faultless. When Paul says he has reason for confidence in the flesh here, uh, he isn't talking about his actual flesh. So he's not saying he has reason for confidence in being physically muscular or handsome. And he isn't talking about uh, the sinful state of humanity, like we see through in other places in the Bible, it will talk about flesh, and it will be um, a, con a, a, a human sinful contrast with godly righteousness. But that's not what he's talking about here either. The context of confidence in the flesh here is actually talking about Paul's Jewish lineage, his national identity, both inherited in his DNA, in his flesh, and his earned status within it. Essentially what Paul is saying, without getting into the nitty-gritty of each thing, is he's saying that he was upper class, highly educated, he's from kingly lineage, he was raised by righteous parents who did everything right to keep him pure. He was a pure-blooded person of his race, the most zealous nationalism possible. You could not get more Jewish or righteous or higher on any boasting level possible within the Jewish culture or faith than Paul. He had every reason to boast, but instead he says, verse 7, 
Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found only in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. One thing that's interesting to note here for um, people who find these things interesting, I suppose, is that Paul, in this sentence, Paul is actually, there are a ton of comparisons to the Christ hymn in chapter 2. The ways that he talks about gains and loss, ups uh, and downs. Um, uh, and it's, it's essentially he is kind of uh, rewording that Christ hymn to speak of himself, but it, moving in opposite directions uh, from Christ. So he had arrived, Paul had arrived in every way possible, but he considered all of that gain as loss when compared to the gain of knowing Christ. So uh, one question I have for you is, what do you take pride in? What do you boast in? Now, okay, you know, for those of us who have been Christians for a while, we're going to say, oh, I boast in Jesus. But okay, let's be honest. Okay, yes, well, we want to do that. But let's be honest. <laughs> there are things, other things that we boast in that we pride in. And of course, here Paul is kind of saying, in comparison to knowing Christ and the resurrection of the dead that awaits, those things are garbage. They're poop emojis. Most of us are like Paul. Or, I'm sorry, most of us are not like Paul. He was the top of the top, the, the creme de la creme. We might not personally relate to seeing ourselves as having reached the highest level of what we think is most important or most defines success or arriving. So instead, let's look at it this way. Let's pause for a moment and think about what in your mind it would mean to arrive. What in your mind would it mean to accomplish the most impressive or important goal? Is there a job or a ministry, an income, a relationship, perhaps a place of influence that you would think, if I got there, I would be at the height of heights. I will have arrived. What do you think would be the ideal life trajectory? Of course, these things are going to be different for all of us. You know, for an example, in pastoral ministry, a common ideal is growing a church into a megachurch. Crowds drawn to you because of your wisdom or your insight or because of your otherworldly compassion or all of the books and, and, and uh, finances that you get from them. Or perhaps sometimes it's simply being affirmed as a great leader by others in and outside of your denomination. And that's just an example from my kind of field. What it is, is it for you in your life? Now, when Paul compare, if we take these things and compare them to Christ, now this isn't to say that these things are necessarily bad or that they have no value. 
if these things come to be as a result of following God's call, of living out the way that God has gifted you, God has created you, and, and doing these things and growing in these things is part of following that call and that gifting in your life. They can and should be celebrated, so don't hear me wrong. Paul himself had a great amount of influence in his own time, never mind throughout history. And he even takes some time to celebrate that as well. So this isn't to negate those things and to say that none of them have value, but it is important for us to distinguish between being faithful in how we live out our call and our giftings as we pursue Christ and we mature in our relationship in Him, and a distinguish between that and pursuing these things and these ends as goals and prizes in and of themselves. It really does come down to intent and purpose and goals and prizes. When they come about as a result of our pursuing Christ, our maturing in our relationship with Him, they can be and are used to reflect God's kingdom in our lives. But as things in and of themselves, as goals, as prizes, when compared to the worth of knowing Jesus, they are like cheap plastic trophies that you can buy at the dollar store. They're like a can of Chef Boyardee pasta compared to butternut squash squid ink ravioli. Knowing Christ surpasses everything, and not by a margin, but by a long shot. Now, I have a little interesting trivia for you. Again, only interesting if you find it interesting, I suppose. But in 2019, a bottle of McKellen fine and rare 60-year-old whiskey was sold for $1.9 million. $1.9 million dollars. It is the most expensive bottle of whiskey in history. Now, there was one sold in 2021 for $2 million, but it came with 18 karat gold and emerald Fabergé egg and a 22,000 gold, 22 karat gold Fabergé timepiece encased in rose gold with sapphire crystals. So while it was sold for more money, the whiskey itself wasn't as expensive. And I don't know why they think that whiskey drinkers are also Fabergé egg people, but that's a whole other question. Anyway, $1.9 million bottle of whiskey. And unrelated, as some of you know, our family became dog owners last summer. And as you know, part of owning a dog is cleaning up after the dog once, of course, it has done its business. And I've got to say, you would think that a person would get used to it, but uh, no way. It doesn't happen. A year later, every single time I bend over with a plastic bag in my hand to pick up that fresh poop radiating its feces particulates into my nasal passages, I almost gag. It's so, it's so gross. Now, I apologize. If you think that picture is too gross or too cr crude for worship, but don't, you can't blame me for this one, because that's actually here in the Bible. In verse 8, the NIV translation says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. While the word translated as garbage is this word scubalon, it is every Bible college student's favorite word. <laughs> right, Jeremy? Anyway. 
I remember, I loved it, but I was a, a very immature Bible college student. But the reason why is because it's as close as you can get to swearing in ancient Greek. It's a very crude word. It's a gross word. Now, our prim and proper translators prefer to say garbage or refuse. But if you really want to get a comparative sense of how Paul's readers would have heard it, we're better to use the four-letter S word, both for its meaning and for the strength of the word. Now, out of respect for what some people would consider inappropriate, I won't actually say the word, but I'm going to tell you a song that I learned when I was in Boy Scouts. <laughs> I have a sad story to tell you. It may hurt your feelings a bit. Last night when I went to the bathroom, I stepped in a pile of shaving cream. Does anybody here know that song? Oh man, I'm, I must have been an immature kid. I love that song. But that's what Paul is saying here. In comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus our Lord, Paul considers his previous gains as a pile of shaving cream. Comparing the worth of Christ, worth of knowing Christ, and the earthly prizes that we strive for is like comparing a $1.9 million bottle of whiskey with a bag of dog feces. Again, Paul is extreme. The contrast between them is so great that even when our status, our pedigree, or influence is actually good and has a positive impact in the world, in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, it's still more of a loss than a gain. This isn't to deflate those things, but to raise up the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so it's no wonder that Paul is able to have such joy when he is in prison as he has given up all that humans strive for to know Christ, to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, to know both the power of Jesus' resurrection, being raised from the dead, but also participating in Jesus' suffering, becoming like Christ in his death. For in Christ, even sufferings, Jesus' sharing in Jesus' sufferings is a great and wonderful thing, becoming like Christ in his death. And while we can experience some of the great depth and power of knowing and being found in Jesus in the here and now, Paul acknowledges that even when we are found in Christ now, we haven't totally arrived. In verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. One thing I love about this is I press on to take hold, and this is the word that, that we heard earlier in that Jesus hymn. Christ did not consider quality with God something to be used to his vantage, to be grasped, to take hold of. It's that same word. Christ did not take hold or grasp his own divinity uh, for his own gain. And in that, but alter, all, in the other sense, that grasping is what Paul is grasping Christ, for which Christ has already grasped Paul. Christ has already grasped, is holding on to us. 
And so we press on towards this goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul gives us this amazing picture of an athlete laying it all down on the field, pressing on, not being distracted by the lure of those dollar store trophies that we used to give such value like status and pedigree and, and uh, climbing ladders, both social and in work. But instead, striving and straining towards this greatest prize of all, which is Christ. This is the prize for which we have called. Now, there's one more metaphor in this passage that Paul uses that I want to address briefly, because I think it ties all of these things together. In verse 14, as I just read, Paul says, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. But then in verse 20, he writes this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we are called heavenward, yet, as Paul says here, we are actually waiting for Jesus, our Savior, to come down from there, to come down from here. So which is it? Are we going up, or is he coming down? Now, it helps when you understand the context of the Philippian church. Philippi was a colony of Rome, kind of like Canada was a colony of England. When Philippi was first established, it was made up largely of Roman soldiers who had helped to overthrow Julius Caesar and then were given the land after the war. So they were proud Romans, proud Roman soldiers that weren't living in Rome, but instead had set up their homes in Philippi. So Philippi in its lineage was proud of their Roman citizenship, but it wasn't in Rome. And while the Philippians were Roman citizens, they didn't live in Rome. In fact, they had no plans to go to Rome. They weren't going Romeward. They were staying in Philippi. Rome was not their end destination. No, they were citizens of Rome, but they lived in Philippi, and they were not Romeward. So Roman citizens living in Philippi, they weren't aiming to go to Rome, but their aim was to bring Roman culture and innovation and rule to Philippi. So similar to the way Paul uses his national identity as a Jew to show how he'd rather boast in Jesus than in his national identity, so he's using the Philippians' pride as citizens of Rome who are living in a different land to point them to their greater citizenship, something that is greater than the Roman citizenship. As, citizenship, as citizens of Rome, they brought the life and rule and the power of Ro Rome to Philippi, but now instead, as citizens of heaven, they aren't looking to get to heaven, they are to bring the life and the rule of heaven to Philippi. Instead of pressing on towards Rome, they were pressing on towards a greater national identity, a far superior citizenship of heaven. And we, of course, are called the same. Instead of bringing life and rule of England to Canada, 
Our national identity is not found in the queendom of Queen Elizabeth, but is found in the kingdom of Christ. We are to bring the life and the rule of heaven to Toronto. Pressing on towards the goal of knowing Christ, of being found in him with the hope of gaining Christ. And the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, both as a motivation and as a present living reality within us, strengthens us to pursue a destiny. A destiny not of earthly words, rewards and prizes, but a destiny of everything being brought under Christ's control transforming our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body when Jesus comes down to us again and ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. This is our hope. This is our goal. This is our prize to know Christ, to know his sufferings and his resurrection. And when he comes again to be transformed so that our bodies are like his glorious body. So why be content with shaving cream when we could have a $2 million bottle of whiskey? Our gain is Christ. Our hope is Christ. Our prize is Christ. All other things are loss in comparison so let us live in a way that reflects the life and the rule of the kingdom of heaven and the surpassing worth of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, I, just, I find this so uh, challenging and inspiring, Lord, to uh, Paul's just his passion, his passion for you to know you, to be found in you, to gain you. And to be able to know that he hasn't arrived, to be able to keep pressing on, even in the midst of a harsh and hard life. Lord, I do ask that you would help us to keep our eyes on the prize. And that is not the things that we do for you, the things that we do for ourselves or our families or our country. The prize in you is not the things, but is in knowing you. We ask God that you would show us who you have created us to be so that we can live out your call and live out and in our giftings, but in a way that keeps you this beautiful, surpassing this thing, the person of greater worth that far surpasses anything we can know or understand. Help us, Lord. Give us your spirit that we may live in you, that we may gain you, be found in you, and know you as we live out your rule and your reign and your life of the kingdom of heaven in the here and now. Amen.